Hey, it's Liz Kelly. Here's what Ringer content you should be looking out for before the end of the week. From the star of Slow News Day, check out Kevin Clark's new video series, Worst Picks of the Week, where he offers up the worst NFL and pop culture bets each week. This will be up every Thursday throughout the NFL season, and you can watch on YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter. Also, up on the site, we have two pieces on The Good Place, and Juliet Lippman is writing about the 20-year anniversary of Felicity. Check it out on TheRinger.com. Thanks for listening to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. Today, I was joined by Sean Fennessy from The Ringer to talk about the award season upon us. It's almost time for all these Oscar movies to hit theaters. You're going to be hearing a ton about the movies we talked about today. We talked a little bit about A Star is Born, of course. And we also talked about Widows, First Man, The Favorite, a bunch of movies that are all going to be in theaters in the next couple of months and will probably be dominating top 10 lists and awards chattered for the months to come. Then later in the episode, Miles Surrey, also from The Ringer, joined me to talk about what I think is the best show on television right now, Better Call Saul. Let's get into the episode. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio, ain't it hard to keep it so hardcore, Sean Fennessy. We're far from the shallow now, Chris. Oh, Sean, uh, great day on planet Earth. Uh, we're just kind of <laughs> floating along here and I wanted to have Sean on to talk about um, Award season for movies, the fall movie preview kind of, but I kind of, I just wanted to talk because, you know, Sean's been seeing some screenings of some of the films that we're going to be talking about from now until February for award season. And I kind of wanted to get his temperature on where a couple of these movies were at. Uh, This morning, it's Thursday, uh, was the world premiere of Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper's Shallow, which is uh, the big song from A Star Is Born. And it kind of got clarified for me today, Sean, that this is this at the very least is going to be the bodyguard again. Oh yeah, it's going to be a moment, a phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you can feel the weight of a Star Is Born coming. I think it's something that can be appreciated ironically and obviously sincerely. And uh, at least for the most part, the people who have seen it that I've heard from are like, you know, you may find some parts of it cheesy or you may find parts of it a little bit melodramatic, but it is sincerely a good movie and they really give it their all. Uh, you're seeing it next week, so we can only really comment on like the meta around it. But one of the things that's been so interesting watching Cooper and Gaga start the process of selling this movie as as not only a for the box office, but for critics, is just how sincere they're being. I, I I guess I grew up with like the more of the George Clooney, Matt Damon, Ocean's Eleven, like everybody's winking and we're like, yeah, it was a great time hanging out, blah, blah, blah. These guys are like, this is a life-changing moment for both of us professionally and personally. Yeah, I mean, today a story was published in the New York Times Magazine about Bradley Cooper, uh, written by Taffy broadister Ackner. And while Cooper evinces a kind of sincerity about the making of the project, he doesn't evince much sincerity about anything else in his life because he sort of refused to talk about it, right. which was a notable choice by him. Um, I think part of it is in an effort to shield his privacy and to not allow someone else to interpret his life, which is clearly something he buckles against. But I do think a, a, an actual part of this is to just put as much energy towards the movie as possible, to, to just let people watch the thing and say, this is how I feel. It's interesting. I mean, this is obviously the fourth iteration of A Star is Born that was made. There was one in 37, 55, 74. And so it's kind of a time-worn story. And, and this one itself was 
was in development for a long time at various points with Clint Eastwood directing, with Beyonce starring. That's right. Yeah. And I think Cooper was still identified by Clint to be the star, yeah. and then Cooper took it over himself. And like you said, I haven't seen it, but it, it essentially exited the Toronto Film Festival to rave reviews. Mm-hmm. And I think when we first started talking about this movie, when the trailer premiered earlier this year, I think this might have even been a ringer piece. It was, this is either going to be the best movie of all time or the worst movie of all time. <laughs> yes. yeah. And I think for the most part, consensus has moved to best, but it does feel very old fashioned. And even Shallow, the song that came out today, is very old fashioned to yeah. me. You know, I, I compared it to Up Where We Belong, the Joe Cocker and Jennifer Warren's song, and uh, maybe November Rain, and you compared it to Aerosmith's Angel. Which is a banger. And truly a banger. And, and also, and Every Rose Has a Thorn by Poison. That yes. kind of countrified, huge arena rock power ballad that, like I think you were saying, it's incredible that the only way for a song like this to be truly popular, probably outside of like, country radio is for it to be sung by two fictional characters in a movie. Yeah, it's it's weird. I mean, Taffy, I think, wisely noted that in her piece. She wrote that it's it's just extremely unlikely that a song like this would be could draw a a Glastonbury style audience yeah. in 2018. So the whole thing has this old-fashioned wrapping paper around it. I, I kind of like that actually. I think it's a nice balance to some of the other movies that we'll talk about here, which you know, kind of dictate the, the 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 shifting tides of the Oscar voter and and what is deemed an Oscar movie. This is really classical, though. This is a real old school candidate. One of the things that makes it old school to me, beyond its time worn narrative, is you can tell when you watch Gaga, especially Gaga, which I think is it's this is sort of an anointed moment for her. You can tell that you're going to be seeing some iteration of this thank you speech. For the next four months. No doubt. And it's it, it kind of reminds me of McConaughey for uh, Dallas Buyers Club, where as soon as you kind of got the sense that this was going to be a big performance, that he was going to be rewarded for it, you were like, no award show is going to be complete without this dude going up and doing like a six-minute speech where he's just like, all right, all right, all right. You know, and Gaga's going to have that. Gaga will definitely cry on national television six times in the next six months. What do you think about this being so stage-managed? Because I feel like the Moonlight moment a couple of years ago redefined Oscars mm-hmm. and award shows. And there was an unpredictability and a kind of like, I don't know, like a, 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 a different kind of sincerity than we had seen before. A surprise aspect. And this is the opposite of that. So if you just see Gaga or Cooper giving the same acceptance speech and then doing the same performance for four straight months, are you okay? cool with that? I think that that's on us as just watching too many award shows and mm-hmm. thinking about this too much. And it's no matter what happens, it's going to become a little bit old for us. I do think that the popularity or the, the presumed popularity of this movie dovetails very nicely with what obviously the Academy Awards wants which is to be a more popular event. And, uh, you know, they had introduced this idea of most popular movie, but they don't really need it this year because we're pretty sure that two of those movies will be A Star is Born and Black Panther, which will get people interested. Yeah, I don't want to say too much about the quality of the movies or break any sort of embargo. I've seen in the neighborhood of 70 to 80% of the things that will be contenders at the end of this year. Mm -hmm. And... I don't think that any of them have really crossed the Black Panther threshold of symbolic, creative, thoughtful, dynamic, innovative movie making. Now, that all comes in the shape of a Marvel movie, and I think that will automatically mean people will hold something against it. And that does mean that there are very dumb CGI fight sequences that will make people think that this movie isn't as meaningful as, insert, prestige film X. But 
the feeling that I had from Black Panther and the feeling that all other people in the world has had from Black Panther, I, it's going to be virtually impossible to match that. I think A Star is Born on a kind of a grand stage is reaching for that same kind of a thing. Yeah. I think you could make the case that movies like First Man and Bohemian Rhapsody and, you know, maybe to a lesser extent, Mary Queen of Scots, front Vice, kind The of. Front Runner. Yeah. Um, all of these movies are all... They, they fit a more traditional box. Yeah. Black Panther is a little bit outside of that box. And it's just, it's a, it's a big tent thing that also has ideas in it. And that's, a, that's pretty new. There's, there's not a lot of precedent for that. Yeah. And another thing that Black Panther had that I think I would like to see more movies with aspirations towards best picture try out, which I know it's very difficult, is the sheer volume of movies that we're going to be seeing that are award caliber coming in the next say 12 weeks is so like huge. It's so loud versus I remember the Black Panther release as kind of like really thinking about it coming out for six weeks before it came out and then really savoring it when it came out and thinking about it and doing podcasts about it and writing about it. That was very exciting. There was a little bit of space around that movie. And I think that I wonder what would have happened if this was a Thanksgiving movie that was coming out. Obviously, Creed 2 is coming out Thanksgiving. But I wonder what would have happened if Black Panther was going up against 12 other movies that were vying for people's attention. That's the thing. I mean, let's just look at October. Sure. Um, I guess on Friday, we have The Old Man and the Gun, which is Robert Redford's final performance. I don't think that's going to be a massive awards contender, but it is the final Robert Redford performance. And he's wonderful in that movie. That's a that's an Oscar movie. The week after that is A Star is Born. The week after that is First Man. The week after that is Beautiful Boy. In that time, 20, uh, July 22nd, the Paul Greencrest movie will come out. The week after that, Wildlife will come out. That's all just October, and that's not even really the bulk of the stuff. So you're right that there, it just gets really noisy and competitive now, and mm-hmm. Black Panther has had a long time to live in the minds of people. For many years, people used to say releasing something early in the year or even over the summer was held against you as an Oscar sure. film. That has changed over time. Obviously, last year, Get Out was released around the same time as Black Panther, mm-hmm. and that was very meaningful for it because it became a meme. It became a cultural event. It became this thing that was burned into our brains. I feel like the same is going to happen for Black Panther. Just a lot of people have a lot of feelings and memories of that movie. They may not be able to develop as many memories of Ben is Back or Destroyer yeah. or even if Beale Street Could Talk, which is Barry Jenkins's new movie and likely will be a contender for a number of awards, it's only coming out November 30th. And it's how long we'll be able to live with people is much, much shorter, much more compressed than Black Panther. I think we were talking about this yesterday in the the, the podcast that is our friendship, the never-ending podcast. <laughs> we were talking about this idea that when we used to be more active or just in general, when we were music critics, there would be those weird years where uh, you get to Paz and Jop, and the, which is the Village Voices R.I.P. Uh, pop critics um, poll that they ran at the end of every year, and people would vote. And sometimes there would be years where you, you know your taste would dovetail nicely with what the critical consensus was, and sometimes it was drastically different. That's happened a couple of times over, I'd say, this last decade. Um, if I'm looking. I don't know. I guess like one good example of a year when that happened for me was like 2011, where the award films were The Artist and The Descendants and The Help and Hugo. And I obviously love Moneyball, but Tree of Life, War Horse, these are all Best Picture nominees in 2011. Um, I think my my top 10, my, my best of list was probably wildly different from that group of movies. Do you get the feeling like maybe that could happen this year for you? 
It's definitely in play. I mean, there are still very few things I've seen this year that I like as much as I like Annihilation. Or and Mining the Gap. Or Black Mining Panther, the Gap. Yeah. Black Pan- I mean, yeah. uh, th- those movies, and I, my list is always like that. I mean, let me just pull up a random year. I make this list every sure. year. In 2015, my favorite movie was Mistress America. My second favorite movie was The Hateful Eight. My third was Anomalisa. Like, those are kind of awards movies, no, but not really. Like, yeah. I, my list, and it's just personal preference. It really has nothing to do. Is not is almost never one to one with the Oscars because the Oscars is like a this complicated secret society voting um, for their colleagues. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not it's neither populist nor critically minded. And that popular Oscar was obviously seeking to solve some of that, but I'm not sure. Passenger is an interesting comparison because Passenger. Is, has more in common, obviously, with sort of like the IndieWire yeah. critics poll. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't have as much to do with the Oscars because the Oscars is this like indefinable collection of people. And I, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say having not seen some of the key films that are coming out later this year, but I do think you're on to something that I guess it, I'm th- saying this is changing. Lady Bird, La La Land, and Moonlight, I was I was good with that. Yeah. Those were the those were three of the best movies that I saw last year, I think. You know, I think my list was a little bit different, but regardless of whether or not I'd ever watch La La Land again, I still think it's quite an achievement. Um and I think, yeah. here's the thing. It's it's very hard to answer that specifically, even though I think you you like I said it, you're on to something, because here's two movies I haven't seen. I haven't seen Roma. And I, which is Alfonso Cuarón's Netflix film, which yeah. is supposedly beautiful and was received rapturously at Venice and Toronto. And I haven't seen Vice, which is Adam McKay's. Right, which used to be called Backseat. It was called Backseat. It is his picture of Dick Cheney. Right. And starring Christian Bale and Amy Adams and Steve Carell and a number of other people. I think that those two movies are going to really say a lot about what happens. Um, the Roma narrative is going to be both about Quaron, who is so celebrated, and also about Netflix. And there's going to be a lot of talk about whether Netflix can win a Best Picture and how much they want a Best Picture and what that means, how they'll put that movie in theaters, how they'll build more energy around it. And Vice is going to be a commentary on a political moment for anybody who follows Adam McKay, either his work for years with Will Ferrell or as a producer on Succession or on on Twitter – you can see that he's a, or the, and clearly the big short, his last film, like he's a really politically engaged person. And I have no doubt he's going to work hard to make that movie allegory for what's happening right now. Yeah. And, you know, I'm curious the same way about Frontrunner, which is uh, Jason Reitman's second film of the year starring Hugh Jackman and is about the fall of Gary Hart during, I guess it was 1988 election. 88 yeah. election. Um, tell me about a movie here that you don't think will win Best Picture, but that you're either very excited to see or you were. You, you love quite a bit. Ooh, that's an interesting one. Uh, the Favorite is not going to win Best Picture. Okay. I love The Favorite. I don't know. I'm not even sure if I'm allowed to talk about The Favorite. I'm not sure if there's some kind of embargo, but I saw it a couple of weeks ago, and I'm just going to say here, I, I thought it was brilliant. It's Yorgos Lanthimos' new film. Yeah. Uh, he is best known for The Lobster, I'd say, and Dogtooth. And last year, he had a movie called The Killing of, the Sacred, of a Sacred Deer, which is deeply, deeply upsetting. Um, the Favorite is much more fun. It's the first film that he's directed that he has not written, mm-hmm. and you can feel it. You can feel that he's been kind of freed and unbound from this sort of like stilted, complicated dialogue that he writes. Um, and it stars Emma Stone, uh, Rachel Weisz, and Olivia Coleman as two women sort of vying for the attention and affection of the Queen of England. And it's just a, like a marvelous, funny, weird, deeply interesting, and complex movie. Yeah. Um, there's a 0% chance it's going to win Best Picture. <laughs> I'm, uh, hopefully it's nominated. Hopefully all three of the actresses are nominated. But uh, it's just a little too... The dial has turned to the left a little bit too much for it to really catch on, I, I think. Yeah. Um, but I'd be happy to prove wrong. Uh, what what about you, you? What's yours? You know, 
on brand, I would say probably Apostle, mm. um, which is uh, Gareth Evans' horror film with uh, Dan Stevens and Michael Sheen. And it has... Um, Gareth Evans of the Raid fame. Yeah. And uh, it has some elements of what I think people are uh, reminded of Wicker Man. But to see this guy who is probably one of the most gifted, visceral filmmakers alive right now I, I hit something that's sort of this rustic rural horror genre, I'm really excited to see. So that's coming out in a couple weeks on Netflix. Me too, and that's yeah. Netflix, yeah. Yeah. Um, what are you hearing about Widows? Because I feel like that's been, um, for, considering that it's the follow-up to 12 Years a Slave, I feel like it's been kind of quiet on that that front. It debuted to a very positive response to Toronto. This is Steve McQueen's new thriller action movie, essentially, yeah. starring um, Viola Davis and uh, Elizabeth Debicki and uh, Cynthia Erivo, a number of other actresses, and also Daniel Kaluuya and Colin Farrell. It's quite a cast. Um, it was very well received. I think it's going to run into some of the same genre problems that Black Panther has, that Get Out will have, which is that it will be celebrated kind of quote-unquote for what it is. You know, you and I know that's unfair. I think you and I probably wish there were literally 10 times as many genre movies celebrated yeah. at the Academy Awards and other uh, award shows. But I, I I don't know. I mean, I haven't seen it. It comes out in November. It looks, feels, and sounds like a fun movie from 1989. Mm-hmm. But movies like that were never recognized in 1989. Now things are different. Steve McQueen is one of the foremost filmmakers in the world. He is hugely respected, and it's going to get a lot of attention, obviously. Mm-hmm. How it's received, we'll see beyond the critics. Let's talk a little bit about Green Book, because that was actually the last question I wanted to ask you, which is what's going to be the most annoying argument of this award season? Oh, boy. Well, so Green Book uh, won the Audience Award at the Toronto Film Festival. This is Peter Farrelly's story of a white man driving a black musician through the, the south. reverse Daisy. Yeah. It's, a, it's a reverse driving Miss Daisy is a way it's been described. It stars um, Mahershala Ali and Viggo Mortensen. It looks like this year's The Help or this year's Hidden Figures. And I haven't seen this either, so it's hard for me to say, but there is an obvious like saccharine, chummy, loopy, crowd-pleasing quality to the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, every critic who's seen it has, has clarified that, whether they like it or not. Um, Adam Naiman wrote for The and Ringer, he and he liked it quite a bit. Yeah, I don't know if I'm dubious per se, but I find it interesting that this has become like a slot in the Oscars. Well, you're talking about that Widow's feel of that late 80s thriller. This feels like a Castle Rock movie or something that it's like, if Billy Crystal was in it, I wouldn't, you know, I mean, it has like kind of that crowd-pleasing right down the middle, but by all accounts, is just, Everything in it, performance-wise, is just that much better than it has any business being. Yeah, my hair's kind of standing on end about the future of the think piece around this movie. Sure. You know, like, I'm really not excited about the conversation around that. Uh, a lot of these movies, I think, will be subject to the think piecing of the universe, and, and we'll do plenty of that work, too. It's not like we're innocent of that. But uh, it's interesting. I mean, you know, obviously, Peter Farrelly of the Farrelly Brothers, who made There's Something About Mary and Kingpin in this series of hilarious gross-out comedies, making a shift towards something that is a little bit sweeter and a little bit more serious is notable. I think, honestly, him being a white guy will be a topic of conversation and telling that story. So that is this other aspect of breaking down a movie like this. I don't know. We'll see what happens. Okay. Well, we'll definitely have you on multiple times over the next couple of months to talk about this stuff. But I just wanted to get a lay of the land first. Thanks for coming on, Sean. Chris, thanks for having me. And let's get back to the podcast of our friendship. (laughs) Thanks again to Sean. We'll talk to Miles about Better Call Saul coming up right after this break. 
Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by the Navy Federal Credit Union. The flagship rewards credit card offers three times points on travel purchases and two times points on everything else. Three times the points on travel means getting rewarded while road tripping or even commuting to work. You'll also get other benefits like a statement credit for global entry and TSA pre-check of up to $100, 24-7 stateside member support, and access to Navy Federal's online shopping center. Check out NavyFederal.org for more information and to apply now. Message and data rates apply. Visit NavyFederal.org flagship for more information. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA. Now I'm joined by, I think this is your first time on the show, right, Miles? It's Miles Surrey from the Ringers New York Bureau. And Miles is here to talk about the best show on TV with me, Better Call Saul. What's up, Miles? How's it going? Oh, man. Uh, I just, I, I was a couple episodes behind and I caught up, as is my want, because I do think that Saul is a show that is great in these three episode blocks. And we've talked a lot before about like the best way to watch it. And it is a a somewhat frustrating week to week watch because so much, so much of the action can kind of seem mundane when you're watching it. Um, But this season has just kind of revealed the show to me. I just, I, I am in awe of every aspect of it. I know I sound like, you know, the guy who just discovered color TV, but it's it really is just the best written, the best shot, and the best performed show on TV. Yeah, I mean, honestly, Better Call Saul kind of feels like a miracle in a weird way because it feels like an inherently bad idea to, you know, create a spinoff to one of the best shows ever made and make it about, you know, a character from the original show that was basically like a thin caricature of himself. But I feel like the longer we you know, watch this show, obviously, like, it's creeping more toward the Breaking Bad timeline, and there's some more stuff going on with, like, Mike and Gus's world, but I'm just way more invested in, like, the minutia of Jimmy dealing with, like, pulling off a scam, or when he was doing Elder Care Law, or just Kim, and, like, how she's doing her work with Mesa Verde, and yeah, I don't think it's hyperbolic at all to, like, call it the best show on television, because it's doing all these little things that you know, even though it's a lot more low stakes than Breaking Bad, it's just, it doesn't make it any less compelling. Yeah, and I, you know, Guillermo del Toro is tweeting this week about how he thinks he might like Saul better than Breaking Bad because the descent of the characters is happening from a more sort of ambiguous place rather than Walter going from very good man to very bad man. It's, this is so much more of a gray area. Andy, I remember uh, when he was writing about Breaking Bad back in the Grantland days, and he's often said that he's talked about the plotting of that show as this precise, almost like uh, a, a watch. You know, the engineering is almost like a watch. And I I agreed with him then. I mean, like, Breaking Bad obviously had such a an amazingly ornate narrative. But there's something about what Peter Gould and his team are doing with the the Better Call Saul plot that is so fascinating to me. It's basically, to me, it's like they're doing something called Chekhov's Pad Thai, <laughs> which is essentially, um, even if a piece of information isn't germane to where the plot is necessarily go- going in the sense that, you know, it's going to matter in terms of Gus's drug empire or Jimmy's conversion from Jimmy to Saul, they all, all these little details go towards something. And over the course of this season, Jimmy keeps asking Kim, who he's living with, what she wants for dinner that night. And he's like, oh, do you want pad thai? You want sushi? Do you want me to go pick up some pad thai? <laughs> he keeps asking her about dinner. And then over the last two weeks, especially, as they've kind of 
ossified as a couple, you can tell that what he's essentially doing is cocooning them and that he's basically asking these mundane questions and trying to keep up this normalcy because he knows what's happening in the outside world is that he's kind of slipping back into this nefarious lifestyle. Do you, do you see that kind of stuff emerging on the show? Yeah, I think that was probably best exemplified with um, that montage to start episode seven, um, Something Stupid, where I, I believe it's like someone online deciphered it. It was either like a six to eight, eight month period where, you know, we follow like Jimmy and Kim through a split screen kind of going about their days. Yeah, and yeah brushing like you their see teeth the every morning. Yeah. Yep. And yeah, you see like the more they sort of got enveloped with their respective jobs, one being like a more legit job with Kim and Mesa Verde and then Jimmy uh, peddling those cell phones on the side. It's like the the more enveloped they get with the work uh, and their relationship on a professional level, the more they drift apart personally. And I, I, I do feel like it's weirdly relatable. Um, I mean, I'm only 26, but like before I came here, you know, I had some miserable jobs where it feels like just like getting sucked into that work can sort of tear you apart from the other things in your life. And I just thought it was such a beautiful little deconstruction of a relationship that, you know, they built so well for four seasons. And then within like five minutes, it was like, wow, they're just hanging on by a thread. Yeah. And I think that 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 speaks to Ray Seahorn's performance as much as Odenkirk's. Odenkirk is, is somebody who in a, some in some ways is more, has a more challenging job because we know what Saul is going to become. So you're always looking at Odenkirk's performance as Jimmy to see these little uh, hints of what's to come, previews of what's to come. Uh, and Ray Seahorn is in this is is in this role, and we know that she is n- does not appear nor is she mentioned on Breaking Bad, which I think is creating a lot of anxiety for viewers, which we'll get to. But what she's doing on a week to week basis, I don't know. I don't. I, I I don't have a lot of like comparison points for it. I don't know what this character is going to do next. I don't know how she she's able to enter into rooms and do these negotiations with lawyers or you know, sit there listening to music as she's highlighting documents or talk to Jimmy about what they're going to watch on TV that night. But there's something about the way in which Ray Seahorn is internalizing her character's crossing point that she's at, this crossroads that she's at, that is so mesmerizing. I don't, I don't know if there's enough plaudits to throw at it. Yeah, I mean, even just the end of that seventh episode where... I mean, I was completely caught off guard, and by the end, she's just like, let's do this again and, you know, pull off another big con. And, you know, I think, I mean, not to take away from Ray's performance, but I think it's just also the way that Kim's written as a character where it's really just hard to predict what she's going to do. Like, you know, going into that episode, I figured, you know, this is them breaking apart, and that to me made, made sense. And then it's like, oh, of course, she actually, there's like this weird sort of turn on she gets from like pulling off these scams because you know especially when uh jimmy moved in with kim their relationship kind of comes off a bit um platonic at times and then you have something like that where that moment leads to essentially like them passionately jumping each other and that leading to victory sex and that is something that's also happened in the past where when she you knows she put on that facade uh, saying she was Giselle St. Clair and they uh, scammed that Wall Street guy out of like a really expensive bottle of tequila and some food like that's obviously something like that's a spark in their relationship and so just seeing how she balances that between 
you know, like she's clearly more passionate about pro bono work than the money she gets from Mesa Verde. And yeah, I think it's a really, really fascinating character. One that I think Saul Breaking Bad fans universally like and... In that sense, she's basically like the anti-Skyler. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was the thing, is that during Breaking Bad, you had this animus for a character in Skyler because I think we were still learning how to watch that show and television was changing at the time. And I, I think that it, at the high points of that show's popularity, people were couldn't help but cheer for Walter at times and probably saw Skyler as um, a hurdle for him to get over in terms of letting him become Heisenberg. Whereas with this show, you wrote about this in a blog post that went up after Monday's uh, episode Cushada went up that you were just mm-hmm. talking about like basically Kim anxiety levels that we've become so attached to this character that we're almost, you know, watching with dread every week to make sure not- nothing happens to her. And it's not even that we think all of a sudden, you know, Nacho's going to kick down the door and kill her or something like that. Any- anything as dramatic as that, it's this, it's this slow slippage that you see. But the thing that's kind of weird is that Kim doesn't remind me of Skylar at all. She kind of reminds me of Walter because clearly she did the, the difference between doing pro bono work for a defendant who can't afford good legal representation and essentially pulling a con job on an assistant district attorney over a person that she's fairly certain at least did the crime that he's being accused of if he's not like, quote unquote, guilty, mm-hmm. gives her such a thrill that it awakens something in her in the same way that at the end of Breaking Bad, Walter's like, I did it for me. Yeah, and I think uh, that brings back to your point about Odenkirk and the performance as Jimmy becoming Saul because we know where he's going to go. So we know that evolution is basically predetermined for him. Where with Kim, you know, we obviously she's not going to be in the picture in Breaking Bad and we just don't know what's going to happen to her. So I, I guess the way, you you know, we can look at it based on the fact that she wants to pull some more scams, it does feel like the thing that might take her out of the picture is like something like disbarment or going to jail. And and I know some some fans probably think she's going to get killed off, but it feels like if that's the way they got rid of Chuck, it would be a little weird to repeat that with with Kim. I mean, it's a it's a violent universe, but, you know, she she's a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in some ways, you know, when you're watching Jimmy and he gets the news about one of his old Sandpiper clients has passed away and they want to know if he can help um, execute the will, that there's some legalese inside the will that they need his, his assistance with. And he has that kind of breakdown, which I think is the suggestion, I mean, to me at least, was that he had this sort of deeper connection with this random person he came across in his life than he did with his brother, but also that there might be some residual, you know, emotional scar tissue being worked out over Chuck through this other person that he was projecting. But obviously Jimmy is somebody with a very uh, flexible moral compass and (laughs) doesn't have the same emotional reactions to things that I think most characters in TV shows do or most people do. Uh, It'll be fascinating to see how they continue to calibrate this. There's basically two ways to watch this show. You can immerse yourself in it and you can just love it for what it is, or you can constantly be kind of looking for the creeping, breaking badness of it all. And I guess Mike is really the avatar for that. Mike and Gus are obviously building something (laughs) out in the desert (laughs) with a bunch of Germans, including a guy with a Borussia Dortmund jersey, which I really enjoyed the hipster soccer uh, shout out there. Um, How much do you want these plot lines to collide? Because if there is a critique of this show right now, it's that it's at least two shows, if not five, 
because there's Jimmy Kim, Mike, Gus, and Nacho, and they all have various plot lines. But essentially, it's two shows. It's the Jimmy Kim law story, and it's the um, and it's the Mike, Gus, and Nacho crime story. How much do you want these two plot lines to collide? You know, it, it's funny because I, I do feel like, you know, obviously, like, the closer we get to the end of Better Call Saul, the more I think Jimmy is going to get pulled into that world because, you know, Mike is that connective tissue because he's the only one he directly, you know, interacts with. And even that, I think this year, they've been together in what, one scene at a diner? That's yeah. That's about it? Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, obviously that's where it's going to be headed, but I, I think this sort of speaks to, um, I forget if it was uh, Gold or Vince Gilligan who said this in an interview where they're like, you know, we we thought we'd be with Saul by now, but we've just been so invested in like exploring Jimmy and the relationship with Kim and, you know, uh, prior to Chuck's death, like the stuff with Chuck. And I do think, you know, like it's not gotten to the point where I'm like, let's just speed it up already. Like let's move on to the next thing. I think the pacing is excellent. It might actually, yeah, I I agree that it probably benefits from a binge, but it never gets to the point where I think that they're kicking the tires a bit and, and like intentionally stalling in any way. I think it's, it's at that right pace. And, and I am actually curious to see, you know, how long the show actually goes on for, because I think at this pace, you know, it would probably surpass Breaking Bad's five, but I don't think that's a bad thing. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting speculation because on one hand, there is a, there is a finite amount of time that it it can be in the world that it's created because eventually it will catch up with Breaking Bad and you could do Mm -hmm. a parallel show, but I think that that would start to get kind of awkward on the other hand, there's obviously this post-Breaking Bad world in which it's that we've seen in the black and white scenes of uh, of Jimmy in Nebraska, of Gene in Nebraska. Yeah. But I think that these guys partially did this show because they realized that this was the sort of this was the best working environment that they had ever had, and that they didn't want to just let that go without without having another like run at it. And so I don't think they're in any hurry to end this. I would imagine it goes six, seven, if I had to guess. And I imagine that they know where it's going to end up, but are in no great hurry to get there. And that's why you get the story of these German engineers taking, I don't know, cumulatively so far now, we're at like, what, two, two and a half episodes of this, these guys living in a warehouse and losing their minds because they're not getting any natural light. And Mike kind of overseeing this situation and we don't even know what ultimately that's going to mean to the greater plot. And that's part of the fun of watching the show. You just kind of like allow the minutia, like you said in the beginning, to sort of wash over you. Yeah. And I mean, I think that, yeah, again, that's another fascinating thread where, you know, with with Mike's storyline at times, it's been just basically a retreat of all the breaking bad things that we're already familiar with. Yeah. Um, and, and same with Nacho, where it's like, oh, of course, Gus just killed a guy. That's you know, That's what he does. He doesn't, you know. That's just a callous move to, you know, basically take ownership of Nacho. But I, I think, you know, with with the Germans in particular, you know, that's that's a way to sort of make that side of the, you know, that that sort of split in the Better Call Saul narrative a bit more interesting. Because obviously we know that eventually, you know, that underground meth lab is going to be built, but we really don't know what the heck is going to happen to these guys. Right. You know, are they going to, you know, basically break down on the job is you know, are they going to try to leave early? Because yeah. it's, I, I feel like with, uh, especially with the, um, I forget his name, but kind of like the head German mechanic guy. Uh, uh, Werner, yeah. 
Yeah, Werner. Like, you know, he he's talked a bit about his wife and how he misses her. He's kind of developing a bit of a, you know, subtle bromance with uh with Mike. They'll they'll share a, a Hefeweizen and all that. And so I, I do think, you know, that's that's building to something that again, it's kind of hard to predict. You know, it could end up being really calamitous. Maybe Gus has to interfere and you know, perhaps he's gonna start fresh <laughs> with a new group because they can't handle it anymore. Yeah. And um yeah, I I, I it's funny because obviously we we know what's going to happen to uh, Jimmy, Mike, Gus. Like these guys are all going to be alive for like you know what in a few years time for the Breaking Bad cycle to to kick in. But somehow it still remains, I think, a show that's really really unpredictable. Yeah, and and strangely, I'm probably most emotionally invest in, invested in Kim and Nacho. So I just want to, before you go, I wanted to ask you what's been your favorite sequence of the year? Cause they have these just mind blowing montages where they have these elaborately plotted, uh, completely perfectly orchestrated, uh, you know, uh, editorial sequences. And I was just curious, which one's your favorite so far this year? Oh man. Um, I, I mean, I got to go back to that, that montage at the start of, uh, something stupid with, uh, because, you know, it wasn't only a, a, a excellent deconstruction of, of Jimmy and Kim's relationship and how they're drifting apart, but also that was like a perfectly executed time jump, which yeah. I think the narrative kind of necessitated because it was still actually quite removed from Breaking Bad. So it's like, let's just, you know, because not only does it provide um, new ground to explore Jimmy and Kim's relationship, but, you know, it's like now we're revisiting Nacho like you know, whatever it is, six to eight months in the future of like, he's still, you know, secretly working for Gus. And like, how is that affecting him? And, you know, we see later in the episode how that does affect him because, you know, now he's got a nice mansion, but he's clearly he's got one eye toward getting out of New Mexico. Yeah. But I just thought the montage with the way, yeah, it, it sort of broke down Jimmy and Kim's relationships. I mean, there's no dialogue at all. It's just five minutes of them going through their routines and it ends with, Kim's side completely blank as as Jimmy is sort of staring pensively at nothing. I know. Yeah. It, it was it was effective. If I had to pick a favorite sequence this year, I think it's actually the most recent episode. It's the letter writing campaign on the bus. Um, oh man! It's just one of those inimitable moments of this show of and I guess of these two shows, but specifically of Saul, where you spend six minutes of your life or whatever watching random characters writing letters on a on a Greyhound going from Houston to to this bayou town in Louisiana and you have no idea why and you can't figure it out and then as the as the meaning becomes clear you're just like oh man how the hell did you guys ever think to do that yeah it, it was incredible also shout out to um Bob Odenkirk's bayou accent that yeah was... the preacher that was great there is a yeah. Mr. Show preacher character that I feel like he was definitely drawing from but that was Maybe they'll do a sequel to Better Call Saul where he becomes a Bayou preacher. That would be really good. <laughs> I, I actually just want a Better Call Saul prequel about Werner and his boys. Yeah, just going to Dortmund games. That would be good. <laughs> yeah. All right, Miles, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, everybody should be watching Saul. Talk to you guys soon. Thank you. 
Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union with three times the points on travel and two times the points on all other purchases. The flagship rewards card makes little excursions feel like the trip of a lifetime. Earn rewards, whether it's a weekend getaway, a short road trip, or even your daily commute. Redeem points for cash or travel and enjoy access to Navy Federal's online shopping center where you can earn extra rewards at your favorite retailers. Check out NavyFederal.org for more information and to apply now, message and data rates apply. Visit NavyFederal.org for more information. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA.